Welcome to Breakout Investors and our inaugural call with management. Today we are speaking with the management of Quipped Home Medical. The call is being recorded on July 6, 2021. Joining me today to ask questions on behalf of the Breakout Investor community are Aaron Warwick and Mark Gomes. Supporting materials for today's discussion will be posted on the Breakout Investors discussion app, which is located at app.breakoutinvestors.com. The application and much of the research content is free. After registering and logging in, use the search bar at the top right of any page, type in the ticker, and the results will give you a link to the research post with the presentation and to other discussion and research relating to today's company. Whipped Home Medical, ticker QIPT, is a durable medical equipment company that works with healthcare providers to mostly provide a variety of respiratory devices and supplies into the home healthcare environment. COVID absolutely highlighted the effectiveness and efficiency of home healthcare and integrating technology to enable remote education and care, topics that I'm sure will be discussed today. Okay, let me introduce you to the members of Quips Management joining us for today's call. Greg Crawford is the company's chairman of the board and chief executive officer. He has been leading Quip since December 2017 and has been working in this space since 1994. Also on the call is Cole Stevens, Vice President of Corporate Development and a leader in shaping the company's investor relations efforts. Greg, Cole, Aaron and Mark, let's get started. Greg, if you would, please take the mic and tell us about your company. Hopefully we'll get a conversation going and have opportunity to learn a lot about Quip. Great. Thank you. Appreciate that introduction. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today on the call. Uh, typically start out on page five here to tell you a little bit about Quipped Home Medical. Uh, so Quipped Home Medical is a full-service durable medical equipment company with a focus on providing clinical respiratory services. We've got over 120,000 active patients, and we deliver over 250,000 pieces of equipment each year. Uh, we're currently in 11 states uh, with over 51 locations. How we get our uh, business, and that I, I like to refer to as the order lifecycle. We have uh, quick boots on the ground sales representatives. They contact call points such as physicians, hospitals, home health agencies, long-term care facilities. They'll detail them on all the products and services that we provide. Once that need is established, and that which is typically on a daily basis, uh, they will contact one of our local service teams. Uh, they will send over the proper medical documentation. Our customer service team will verify the insurance benefits, obtain any pre-authorizations or predeterminations. Uh, once payment is secured from the insurance company, it gets dispatched to our distribution team. Our distribution team consists of registered respiratory therapists, patient service technicians, and nurses. That team will provide all the delivery and education of the product and also the ongoing compliance and service support. Once the initial delivery is completed, uh, it's turned over to our billing team. They will work the revenue cycle. They'll process all the documentation for billing and ensure collections for all the subsequent months of rental. On the slide seven, we have a strong and growing recurring revenue model. Currently, our recurring revenue is at 75%. That's up 7% year over year and 25% is sales. Our product mix is uh, very diversified. Is home oxygen therapy is 23%. Sleep therapy devices is 21%. Sleep therapy supplies is 19%. Our home ventilator program is 17%. And then our basic home medical equipment and power mobility to complement those respiratory products rounds out at approximately 20%. We have a very diversified payer mix with Medicare only representing 40%. 
Private insurance represents 38%. State Medicaid programs represents about 12%. And then private patient pay represents 11%. Some company highlights is our utilization of our unique technology applications uh, that allows us to get patients onto our platform and onto our services quickly and efficiently and helps remove the friction points. Also, that subscription revenue model that I mentioned is 75% of our overall revenue is recurring. And then also our diverse product offering. We also have a very active acquisition focus as, as part of our growth strategy. And we operate in a highly fragmented market with over 6,000 unique quote mom and pop type providers that could potentially be acquired. We also believe that we're undervalued relative to our peers based on our 2022 estimates that we're trading at 6.9 times EV to EBITDA compared to our peers at 11.3 times EV to EBITDA. On to slide nine, we operate in uh, currently in the best regulatory environment I believe that we've been in in well over a decade. Uh, and part of the reason being is there was the cancellation or removal of 13 product categories from this round of the competitive bidding program that this industry has been subject to since 2010. Uh, so what that's done for us is it's given us a clear margin outlook, and it's also uh, kind of pointed to what we've said uh, since about 2016, the last time we've seen any material reimbursement cuts, is that reimbursement rates have hit a floor. So we believe for the foreseeable future that we've been uh, de-risked from any further Medicare uh, reimbursement cuts and have a clear margin outlook for the foreseeable future. Some industry dynamics, we operate in an industry uh, that is growing about five to six percent a year. It's uh, just breached the $55 million mark, $55 billion mark in that for 2021. Uh, and there's also 10,000 people turning 65 or older every day uh, for the baby boomers. And that's truly, that's our core market. As far as our strategic growth initiatives on a go forward basis, it's a three prong approach. Uh, one is organic growth. The second is technology implementation. And the third, is acquisitions. On the organic growth side, we talked about those 10,000 baby boomers turning 65 or older every day. Also, the number of Americans suffering from sleep apnea has increased 70% over the past 25 years. It's also estimated that less than 20% of the population that would have severe sleep apnea and that has been diagnosed or treated. The utilization of home oxygen, and that has increased 15% in the last five years. We've also seen a very strong demand uh, throughout the pandemic and also going into 2021 uh, for home oxygen therapy. Also, the number of Americans suffering uh, from three or more chronic diseases is expected to increase 171% to over 83 million people. We believe with our diversified product offering, we're set to capitalize on that. The second piece of our uh, growth strategy is technology implementation. With this industry being so highly fragmented, a lot of smaller companies have not made any commitments to technology. Uh, we've been committed to technology for the past three years. Uh, our to all of our systems are uh, in interconnected. We're completely tech driven. It's continuously evolving. And really what tech has allowed us to do is it's allowed us to grow our patient base, grow our revenue, and, and also remove a lot of the friction points that are required to order this equipment in that uh, a piece of our Tech platform is a telehealth platform. We've had a telehealth platform in place for over three years. Uh, since the pandemic, uh, we heard a lot about telehealth. We've used telehealth for training of our sleep patients. 
and and we've uh, most recently and that throughout the pandemic seen that evolve into other pieces of equipment that we've been able to get patients set up and also troubleshoot and get patients compliant. So what tech has done for us is it's created a totally connected healthcare platform for benefits to patients, payers being the insurance companies and physicians. The benefits have allowed them to simplify their health management for these respiratory products. We've been able to drive early interventions and that with these patients through better patient engagement and ultimately improve their outcomes. The totally connected healthcare platform, along with the clinical services that that are provided for the respiratory products are truly our market differentiator out there in the marketplace. The third piece of our growth strategy is acquisitions. Our acquisition strategy to date, and that has been regional expansion, uh, but most recently with the regulatory environment and with our balance sheet that we currently have, it's really became a three-tier approach. Uh, one being our traditional companies that we've looked at have been five to $20 million in uh, top line revenue. Most of those companies we've seen consistent annual EBITDA margins between 10 to 20%. Most recently with the regulatory environment that changed in uh, the first part of this year and that we started looking at sub $5 million and even some sub $1 million companies. We believe that that's a great deployment of our capital and will allow us to continue to build our national footprint as we're striving to become a national provider. And the third piece, uh, third tier of our acquisition strategy would be much larger revenue size acquisitions, um, potential top line revenue companies that would be 30 to $60 million. Uh, We believe with our balance sheet, we've currently got over $28 million in cash, and we've got an untapped credit line with our lending partner CIT for $20 million. So we've got almost $50 million worth of liquidity, and we believe that we could be an active bidder on that size company and that as those uh, come to market. As far as our integration capabilities, uh, we're fully capable of integrating companies and and, uh, squeezing out those cost synergies. And on a, uh, I missed, I'm sorry, on the Purchase price we see for most companies in that, in that say $1 million to $20 million, we see purchase price consideration of five to seven times EBITDA on a post-acquisition basis uh, after we get those fully integrated onto our platform and that we see three to four times EBITDA. Got an acquisition uh, summary here uh, to date in that we've acquired over the past three years about seven companies for a total of $33.1 million worth of cumulative revenue. You can see our purchase price has been all over the board from anywhere from about 50% of revenue to 100% of revenue, and multiples have been anywhere from about three times to about five times. Our strategic initiatives in that have resulted in our growth trajectory that we're on right now. Our current run rate revenue is about 100 to $105 million worth of revenue. Uh, One to two years, likely on the side of one year, and uh, with the acquisition pipeline that we have right now, $135 million run rate revenue with 20 to 22, 22 to 25% EBITDA margins. Three to five years, 250 million plus in revenue. And as we continue to build scale, 25% plus EBITDA margins. Some financial information, uh, we're on a physical year basis. It ends on uh, September 30th. So these results are th- uh, through the first six months, which ended March 31st, 2021. Uh, you can see our revenue has went all the way on a uh, Q2 basis. Comparison has went from $14.8 million Q2, 18, all the way to $24.2 million Q2 2021. I think the uh, big results on this slide here is the quarter over quarter. Uh, we've seen a 7% increase in total revenue. 
And year over year, we've seen a 36% increase in total revenue and a 22% increase in the adjusted EBITDA margin. Some Q2 year-to-date results, uh, $29.3 million in top-line revenue from 18 all the way to $47.47 million in Q2 2021. Uh, Big uh, things on this slide here that I'm very proud of for our operations team and our sales team is our year-over-year that 37% increase in total revenue and then the 13% organic revenue growth. And then the $6.6 million of positive cash flow from operations versus $5.2 million in the prior period, where it's uh, starting to show that we're really starting to build some scale there. Adjusted EBITDA margins uh, from 2018 and that to 2021 have went all the way from 12% all the way to 22.3%. Uh, On a full-year basis from fiscal year 2017 to fiscal 2020, they went from 1.4% to 21.3%. As far as our capital structure and inside ownership, uh, we've currently, as of the date this deck was put together on 6-2, we had about 30.6 million shares outstanding. The only debt that we have is a convertible debenture for approximately $15 million. Uh, That cash and cash equivalents as of 6-2 was at $27.2 million, and then that undrawn $20 $20 million uh, credit facility there. The management team and the board is fully aligned with our shareholders and that we have about 10% of the shares on a fully diluted basis. There's just a comp table there on uh, slide 24 to kind of show you where we're trading at the time this deck was put together at about 6.9 times compared to our peers at 11.3 times based on the 2022 estimates. Uh, Management team, myself, as Scott mentioned, I've been in the industry well over 25 years. Uh, I owned uh, owned a private business that was doing about $19 million worth of top-line revenue. I had sold it to Quiptone Medical in 2015. Shortly after that, I was appointed as COO, had taken the company through a restructuring, and then uh, later in uh, late 2017, was appointed chairman of the board and CEO. Uh, Hardik made our CFO has been CFO and that now for just over three years. Hardik comes with a finance background and investment banking background. Uh, Hardik runs the day-to-day of all of our data analytics and also our M&A. Tom Rierick, our EVP of finance, has got over 30 years of hands-on experience. He's responsible for the day-to-day of our accounting department and all of our public filings and our statements. Board of Directors, we have three independent directors. Mark Greenberg is an independent director. Mark's got over 30 years of hands-on experience in uh, M&A and funding transaction. Mark advises the company on all of its M&A transactions. Eugene Ewing's an independent director. He's got over 30 years of professional experience, was also a partner in one of the U.S.'s largest certified public accounting firms. He also serves on the board of several NYSC-listed companies. He's also the chair of our audit committee. Dr. Kevin Carter is our newest independent director. Uh, Dr. Kevin Carter is a board-certified sleep physician. He advises the company on all of its clinical programs. And most recently, and that uh, we've listed on the NASDAQ and commenced trading on May 27th. And that's the end of the presentation. From here, we could kind of, I'll let Cole take over and maybe give you a uh, background on our capital markets efforts. Appreciate it, Greg. Thanks, everyone, for taking the time. Just to give everyone a little bit of history for Quipped and where we've come from and where we're going, the company was initially taken public in Canada. I'm sure many of you 
on this virtual meeting have noticed that we've got a TSX venture listing and you know, the company sort of took a, a backwards approach to the capital markets sort of landscape. The company was taken public by a, t- a separate management team, uh, attorney and investment banker out of California, who had a vision of rolling up the durable medical equipment industry uh, on the backs of a business that was involved with testing patients on Coumadin, different blood thinners, and then you know, basically gaining addition, additional patient databases by rolling up the DME space. You know, Greg mentioned his company was acquired by, at the time, ProTech, which is now equipped, and the former management team. And Greg was sort of tapped on the shoulder to come in as the COO at the time and restructure the company. We had a two large shareholder groups, one being uh, the Viamed shareholders, and, you know, Viamed's a company that's been out of here, the ticker VMD, Victor, Martha, David. Two separate visions, Viamed very single-threaded in the uh, ventilation therapy side of things where we're more of an end-to-end respiratory solution. So, you know, our focus has been on a full solution solution that we can provide to hospital systems, re- referring physicians, et cetera, and, you know, just two different visions. So we felt that the company splitting up at the time would be would be best for shareholders and and at the you know as we look back sort of over the last three years i think that could be said to be the right decision so last summer we listed on the otcqx we really had no u.s listing it was tsxv company sub 100 million dollar market cap with really no capital markets exposure whatsoever we retained the likes of stiefel nicholas and raymond james canacore beacon who cover us in canada colliers becoming our first u.s analyst listed on the QX and sort of begun to engage the U.S. capital market sphere, you know, in order to really help folks understand, you know, what the vision of ProTech now equipped is and, and where we were going in the respiratory care market. We're, we're fairly unique. If you look at the industry landscape, there's four or five, I'll say, billion plus players, one 500 million plus player. And then it sort of goes right down to us, $100 million in revenue. And and then you really go to a lot of mom and pop, 6,000 mom and pops in the industry. So we sort of see ourselves as unique as there's no other publicly traded company that is our size in our in our field. So a unique opportunity trading sub seven times with, you know, 50 plus million in liquidity. You know, we feel now with the NASDAQ listing behind us and our capital markets initiatives continuing and getting in front of institutional investors and we're on the right track. That was really good, guys, um, and tight. Um, you got all that into 20 minutes. Love the love the deck, um, and you guys are ready ready for the show. Appreciate Thank it. You. Well, we have some good questions that were submitted. If you guys have time to take some of them, we'd appreciate it. Sure, uh, absolutely. One of them that came in kind of late here, but I thought it was a good question, uh, is about recurring revenue. Uh, the last time you reported that was up over 75% of your income and uh, wondering how much as a percentage do you expect that to be going forward? And then also somewhat related to that, uh, for how long does the average customer use your services? Yeah, as far as the recurring revenue and that, I mean, we expect that that's going to stay, you know, pretty steady there in that mid to high 70s and that that's something that we update on an annual basis. Uh, it does fluctuate from quarter to quarter, depending on uh, certain product categories. Uh, but, you know, we fully expect that to, you know, kind of stay at least a minimum threshold there. As far as the uh, length of stay for a patient, that really kind of varies on the product and service in that that they're actually provided. Um, uh, just for example, in that our home ventilators and that is uh, currently at about 11.9 months and that our home oxygen is approximately 30 months, uh, just to give you a couple examples. Great, thank you. 
had another question about depreciation um, and how quickly you depreciate equipment compared to the actual useful life of the equipment itself. Could you maybe give us a little context on that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so we typically in that align our depreciation with payment schedules uh, based off insurance coverage. And that's so if an insurance company pays 12 months and then considers that equipment owned by the patient and that it's uh, depreciated at, at, at 12 months. The only thing that probably does not align with that would be ventilators and that we depreciate those over five years. Uh, you know, typically a patient only has that for 12 years, although we do, you know, have ventilators that are seven, eight, nine, 10 years old. Uh, but uh, that's kind of kind of a rule of thumb that utilizes five years. Our oxygen equipment is 36 months, which aligns with how long Medicare pays for oxygen for 36 months before they kind of fall into what is referred to as the donut hole. So I, uh, I took from that, uh, Greg, that uh, in, in many instances, the equipment um, accrues to the to the patient. You get you get paid once, or you get paid over this period of time. It was it was the it was the first item. You said you you depreciated over the twelve months, and it sounded like it then becomes the patient's property. It could, yes, yes. For a CPAP, for example, in that, I mean, it it hits our dock. It becomes inventory once it's placed on a patient. It that's when it kind of becomes a fixed asset, and we start depreciating it at that time. But that item could, you know, and, and, and then a typical insurance company pays around 12 to 13 months for, for that item. And then on, on those particular items and that that's when the equipment is transferred to the patient kind of title of the equipment. And, but the ventilators, the with ventilators the and oxygen, we always own that equipment. Got it. Thanks. Um, what it, one other question that came up, you had kind of mentioned this about the reimbursements. Uh, a question came up over the reimbursement risk over the long term. Obviously, you know, you had the presentation in your presentation about the a nearer term, term look. But what about, you know, five to 10 years down the line? Is there any concern over that? And especially, you know, someone asked, as your margins uh, start to get higher, if you have any concerns that there could be pushback? Yeah, yeah, I think there's always some uh you know, risk with the reimbursement and that as far as would would Medicare look at it, you know, from that um, standpoint in that. But I think the regulatory environment that we're in right now, and that is truly the best that we've been in in over a decade to look out five or 10 years and that it, it, it would really be a stretch to, you know, kind of predict what would happen in that in that length of time. But I think over the near and the medium term here, uh, things really look good for the first time and that I did not mention before and that we actually received an increase from Medicare and that on uh, home oxygen. So back in April. So everything at this point in time and that really points to, uh, you know, potential further increases on the reimbursement side. Building on Aaron's question, he, he, he suggested that your net margins might be material enough that the regulators would get a clue that they're over reimbursing. Do you, do you have perspective on the larger players in your space? Are they seeing or are they targeted at 25% net EBITDA margins? Yeah, yeah. so you're seeing most of them kind of in that range. I think it would depend on uh, exactly what they're capitalizing as equipment and that what, what's considered CapEx spend. We don't have a good handle on an apples to apples comparison to say that we we depreciate the same items that they do, and that could vary a little bit. I see. Yeah, and, and just going to the to the heart of the question, the reimbursement rates are more set for the provider with with the providers in mind. The rate of reimbursement necessary to 
make it economic for the providers to provide the service. When you bring a specialist in like yourselves, like some other companies we know, um, you, you're, you're going to have focus and efficiencies that are going to make you more profitable. The whole point of this being, I'll try to frame it as a question, I'm not worried about the regulators or the CM, CMS looking at you and saying we're, we're reimbursing too much because WIPT is making too much money. Uh, you, you, you guys are, are far enough down the chain and small enough within the context of the services being reimbursed that uh, people shouldn't be concerned that you get so profitable as to that leading to a change in reimbursement rates. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, you know, see that, uh, you know, as being on the radar. I think at this point, DME is still only less than 2% in that, I believe, of the overall healthcare expenditures in the U.S., still a pretty big market. Uh, but uh, we are really, uh, insurance companies, including Medicare, are really starting to look at us as, you know, a uh, cost alternative solution in that uh, for home care to get patients out of the hospital and put them on oxygen, re other respiratory devices or other medical equipment that can allow them in that to uh, recuperate at home rather than in a hospital bed. And that, and I think with the pandemic, that's just really been underscored, uh, you know, on a go forward basis. So I think they really look at us as a solution, not just an equipment provider. Right. Uh, I, I often go to that too and ask the question with respect to reimbursements, uh, the part of the expense chain that they would look at is not you. You're saving them untold exactly. amounts of money. You're so much cheaper than the alternative. Right. It would be crazy for them to focus by trying to squeeze you. If, if anything, it would result in uh, greater expenditures because uh, providers like you would be forced, potentially forced out of the marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when you look at it too, and that should there be a change in reimbursement in that, would would they pay less for equipment? Is that possible? But do they start paying for clinical services, which they currently do not? That's all kind of included. Uh, so that would give them the opportunity for companies like ourselves that are, are truly clinically focused in that and keeping patients out of the hospital and have clinical programs, would, would we actually get paid for those types of services? So guys, I think one of the big questions that, that I always get about your company and, and uh, several people um, submitted questions related to this is the where the synergies come on your acquisition. Is it from headcounts? Is it from systems consolidations, you know, better negotiation power, um, you know, crossover in terms of sales? Where, where does that come from and, and what are you looking for um, when you're looking to acquire a company? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's all of the things above that you mentioned. I think one of the biggest ones out of the gate for us in that that we really focus on outside being a great uh, a clinical provider for services. We're also very, very good at billing and collections. Uh, uh, so we tend to be able to reduce the bad debt expense on those acquired assets once we uh, put our uh, workflow processes in place, our order intake processes in place. Uh, you know, so that's a real big one in that is that we look to uh, uh, imp improve collections on those acquired assets. It's tend to uh, not be a focus, especially on the much smaller companies. Uh, from there and that, of course, there's always a savings on the cost of goods side. Um, uh, uh, just the uh, tech kind of a layering, a lot of the platforms and things that uh, we, we have in place to order equipment, to uh, 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 from ordering equipment, I'm sorry, I'm getting lost, <laughs> but but from ordering the equipment to the patient compliance, providing the clinical services, 
when you create all those efficiencies throughout the organization and that that's where you really start to uh, see the synergies in that. So uh, uh, creating those efficiencies throughout there between that, uh, reducing the bad debt expense, uh, you know, then you ultimately in that uh, you're able to get more through the systems and that uh, by rationalize the payroll. And what specifically do you do that that helps you so much with that bad debt expense? Because I know that's a big, big item in your industry. Uh, uh, really just improving the uh, uh, billing and collections processes and that there's really no systems in place in most of these smaller companies. They're just not focused on uh, the uh, collecting from the insurance companies. Uh, you know, so just putting systems in place that are typically not there. On rationalizing the payroll, I've always envisioned that the companies that you're buying, maybe 30 percent of the uh, of, of the personnel are related to back office billing collection management uh, uh, and the like. And I've always guessed that that portion of the salary is eliminated. You you keep the people in the field. You probably keep somebody in the home office, mostly on a warehouse side, and everything else is centralized. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, that's a fair statement. So we really try to uh, uh, turn all of the uh, locations into more patient-centric service centers. So they're 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 handling some of the order intake process, but they're handling uh, uh, walk-in patients, the distribution side of things. We try to remove everything that has to do with running that business on a day-to-day basis that they're typically used to. There, you know, we remove all the finance, all the uh, uh, human resource, the uh, uh, compliance, the licensing. All of that's removed back to the corporate office, and that immediately. Uh, a billing is something that typically happens over a quarter or two. As we get those processes in place and kind of ramp up, we really have to kind of figure out what they're doing. But uh, uh, really turning them into nothing but patient service centers, that's our goal. In a typical facility that you would take over on an acquisition is set up for walk-ins. It's more of a retail as opposed to a warehouse setup. Uh, well, uh, most of them either have some type of walk-in or they're in a flex space in that where people do come in uh, the office to pick up things. And it's hard to change those habits immediately. Okay. So I think you kind of hinted at it, and I think you've said this before, maybe the one to two quarters. Is that is that a fair way to think about how long it takes you to, to fully integrate a new acquisition and, and to get get them to where you want them to be in terms of the EBITDA? Yes, absolutely. Yep, that one to two quarters. And it really just depends on each, each acquisition is a little bit different. I wanted to ask you guys, too, of course, one of the big changes here recently is the whole Quipped name. Um, and maybe just if you guys could explain that, I know someone pointed out that you, you've noted in the past that you maintain the local DME operating brand uh, and just wondering what the long term strategy is there, how that would help, um, you know, with this with this name change or how that could possibly hurt because, you know, you are changing names. If you could just give us a little bit of uh, feedback on that and, and, and why you did that and what you're looking to, to do with it. Yeah, sure. Uh, so to date, in that any name that we've used in capital markets, formerly ProTech and now Quipped Home Medical, was strictly used for capital markets. Uh, uh, we never changed any of the acquired assets, names or anything. But I think as we've matured here as a company in that we're taking a different stance on that and, uh, you know, really want to start building a brand recognition especially in that looking at some of these smaller companies and that, for example, we go into a state, we acquire a company, they've got the full suite of insurance portfolio that would allow us to build the commercial insurances. Do we really want to expand that name of ABC Medical or whatever it might be? 
you know, uh, around the state versus starting to brand ourselves. The other thing we were starting to run into is that we were acquiring companies in that within the same regions that we were. So we were starting to kind of trip over ourselves in that with multiple names. Uh, so with the timing of the NASDAQ listing at the inflection point that we really were, we thought it was time to find a name that more reflected who we are and where we're going. Uh, so you will start see, uh, start to see us in that, uh, start using the name Quiptone Medical in that as we acquire assets and as some of the assets we have currently and that will start taking on that name. And in fact, we're uh, developing a plan right now to make sure that's as smooth as possible. Yeah, and can you talk to that a little bit? Because I know now, you know, someone pointed out and I noticed it myself, if you Google your name, you're not necessarily the first one to pop up, especially if you haven't done it before, you know, with the cookies and stuff, it might be different. But um, what what is your plan to kind of get out both on the institutional side and on the retail side uh, to make people aware of, of what you guys are doing to end and uh, make them aware of this name even. Maybe I'll jump in there. Yes. Um, and, and it's a good question. Um, first and foremost, we're gonna obviously have an updated website. You know, we've, we've got Quip branded as our former website, but we're gonna have a whole new sort of launch to that website in the near future. And obviously that'll help with your, your first part. The second part is we have spent a lot of time, energy and resources in engaging with institutional investors in the US. I mean, one of the goals of listing on the QX and now the NASDAQ has been to broaden out our geography from a shareholder standpoint, as well as the quality of our shareholder base. Um, you know, we've been very successful in the early stages here. I like to, if we're looking at it as a nine inning baseball game, we're probably in inning number three of, of really getting the quip name out there. Um, but having really productive conversations, whether we're attending conferences, which we're going to continue to do. We've got three through the summer. We've got a couple in the fall, so we're going to be active there, continuing with non-deal roadshows, engaging the buy and the sell side, which is very important. And I think that the quality of the institutions that are coming into the stock, as I think you'll see as filing season comes and so forth, I think is critical. And then I think, moreover, you know, we have spent no time or effort on retail. Obviously, in our day and age, retail is extraordinarily important and provides liquidity to a stock. So getting the Quip brand name in front of retail is very important. So from that standpoint, we, we've got a, a, an initiative that is just at the early stages of beginning that will begin to get the Quip story out there in the media. And I think that you know folks are excited you know, from a, a media standpoint because, as, as we've talked about, we've got a great story with the aging demographics in the U.S., unfortunately, unhealthy Americans. And then structurally from COVID, treating patients earlier on in their disease state in the home. So with all these tailwinds at our back, we've got a good story to tell here. It's just a matter of, you know, many folks don't know the name Quip. That's why, you know, Aaron, Scott, you, you, you both were very early on to this, this story. And, you know, although the company was listed in Canada in 2010, it this is really our IPO. This is how we're looking at it. So we want to go about it with a strategic approach. There was no financing that went along with the NASDAQ listing, which makes it a little bit more challenging because now you have to organically go out and find and get those investors interested and talk with them. But, you know, with a sub 200 million market cap and 50 plus million of liquidity and we have no debt outside of a convert, which is going to convert to equity. It's a really clean story trading sub seven times. So I think that'll compel any investor to want to take the meeting. And I think you're going to start to see as we continue to execute on the business front, you'll see things line up and I think the valuation will close its gap with its peers as we go here. Thank you, Cole. One of the one of the most compelling things about your story as it's going to be presented to people is the growth rate. Uh, 
Now, the majority of the growth comes from the acquisitions. In your most recent quarter, you 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 talked uh, about 11% organic growth. How do you calculate that? Is that, I mean, because you know there there is a synergy aspect. You buy a business, you 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 push forward all of the SKUs, if you will, that uh, your larger organization offers. Is that part of the organic growth, or is there some other element to your improvement? of the existing businesses to give you greater than the demographic growth rate that one would, you know, would be the starting point for somebody thinking about your business. Yeah. So when we calculate organic growth, we're kind of looking at same store sales over, you know, uh, same time period. Most of our organic growth that we're driving right now, and that is really taking market share. Uh, the, the industry continues to be consolidated. I think the uh, bigger you get, I think an easy way to describe it is, is if you're round, you're going to fit into that round hole for them. But if you're square, you're not. And we've really been able to carve out a niche in the marketplace for us in that with the clinical services that we provide in our patient compliance programs. Is that sort of a differentiator you think? Yes. For us? Yeah, that's truly, that's our big market differentiator. And then, you know, you take the tech piece that most of the smaller companies have, and, and still providing that high level of service, high touch model, um, uh, that that's how we're gaining the market share. And, you know, we're still able, though, to deliver great margins on top of that, too. So it's been a really nice balance for us. Do you think low single digit growth is uh, a reasonable assumption for you guys going forward as you go to that $250 million target? I, I mean, I think that's a good conservative approach, yes. What did I say? I said low double digit. So that 11 percent is a good bogey. Yeah, well, the high the high 10 that uh, high single digits, the 10 percent range in that I think is a a good number. We've been outpacing that in uh, this year. In 2019, we were at 9.6 percent. The majority of that growth came in the back half of the year. 2020 in that in the covid environment in that uh, we had eight and a half percent organic growth. Uh, we've never had the ability in that uh, to what you're seeing going on right now is the ability to expand our sales force into continuum areas. And that's what's, uh, you know, also helping fuel the organic growth. Could you touch on your your geographic distribution? Are we going to see more in Florida? And when are you going to start filling out the rest of the map? Yeah, uh, we're going to start filling out the rest of the map very, very soon. As far as Florida, we've already opened one DeNova location since our acquisition in February. Uh, we're currently servicing some other bigger markets and that and kind of getting our uh, footprint there. Uh, once we get our footprint, that's when we'll actually open a location. Uh, we still got a pretty broad reach in that uh, from a distribution uh, from where we're currently at in Florida in Jacksonville. Uh, but we've got our eye on a couple other markets there. Is is Florida particularly competitive? Uh, uh, we're, we, we are finding right now in that that our uh, uh, the clinical services that we're offering in that is uh, resonating very, very well in that, uh, you know, down there in that state. It's uh, primarily a uh, uh, stronghold for a couple of the nationals down there. And we've got some very strong clinical programs in that that uh, are allowing us to penetrate those markets. Thanks. I think the CFO mentioned it on the last call, but I can't remember now. Um, if he gave a specific number, what are you thinking of in terms of the back half of this year? It sounded like it would be strong acquisition pipeline. Uh, what are you thinking in terms of the number of companies or the, the dollar of revenue that might happen in the back half of the year, especially after these these warrants have cleared? And you guys presumably are going to have the cash from that as well. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, so I think Hardik had mentioned in that that we had about $40 million or so in the pipeline. Uh, I think it was approximately about 15 acquisitions. Uh, as far as what would close, I wouldn't want to put a number of the acquisitions, but uh, as I had mentioned that uh, one year or less on the lighter side of the one year to be on a run rate of $135 million, we have the balance sheet to support that. We have the acquisition pipeline to support that. Uh, you know, and I, you know, I think we'll reach that sooner rather than later. Good deal. Final question that I had was just someone that does have some M&A experience asked about, um, you know, why you choose to announce uh, non-binding letters of intent. And if that doesn't, you know, question whether that gives the company a little bit more leverage uh, that you're negotiating with as, you know, investors might be disappointed than if you don't close the deal. So maybe you could just give us some insight on your thinking there, why you choose to announce the LOI rather than wait for the for the deal to close yeah so some of them in that uh are uh, material in that so we do have to announce the lois uh there there is some risk there we don't always announce in that but it just depends on uh, uh what the acquisition was we would rather wait until after they've closed uh just in case and that something happens in that it has actually happened to us before uh on funding day so <laughs> scott or mark do you you guys have any I want to give some room to Mark here. Yeah, I mean, you guys have covered quite a bit here. Um, and one thing that really strikes me is, um, and thank you for the time, by the way. Um, what what do you look at in terms of the sales and marketing synergies on an acquisition that you take in? Yeah, so the biggest opportunity slash synergies there would be the cross-selling of products. When we are typically looking at an acquisition in that, uh, we do look for the company to be 65% respiratory or so, uh, but they're typically kind of specialized in one area, whether it be sleep or oxygen or ventilation, that gives us an opportunity with the infrastructure to immediately start cross-selling uh, multiple products. Okay, and how much of that do you see across the uh, acquisitions that you've made to this point? Is that as far as the opportunities, it, it, it'd be hard to put a number or anything like that. But. Well, quali qualitatively, is this, is this been a, an area of particular strength or is it something that just occurs once in a while? Oh, I mean, it's part of when, when we look at the acquisition as far as what's the opportunity in that. I mean, that's a big part of, you know, what can we really do with this company after we acquire it? Uh, you know, not just that it's a. $10 million company, how are we, you know, what's the path to get there and make it a $12 million company over a certain time period? And and that's where we kind of look at uh, the sales side of it to see what products we can uh, start cross-selling. Gotcha. Um, and how would you, so, you know, for a company your size and growing, how do you um, justify the time and opportunity cost of going after a, a million dollar company? Yeah. Uh, so that would just be a part of our strategic plan. Everything that we do in that, uh, it, it really had, we're very acquisitive in that we don't just buy a company for the revenue. If we feel that there's great opportunity in that within a state to buy a company, which is something that uh, we've started focusing on. We, we were passing those up in that, but I think we look at this, uh, the regulatory environment, the reimbursement environment that we're in right now, and it's truly the best we've ever been in. I couldn't be more excited. So I think looking at these types of acquisitions, uh, you know, uh, it's worth putting our uh, energy into them. We've also got the resources and the talent in that to be able to integrate. Uh, extremely confident in our integration capabilities. 
So we just feel it's a great deployment of our shareholders capital. And to add to that as well, Mark, you know, an important thing to think about when you think of these sub $1 million companies is it may be the initiation of a footprint in terms of our operating footprint into a new market to give us some leverageability with our existing infrastructure and then building logistically outward, as well as insurance contracts that this sub $1 million entity may have, which are important to us. So I think it's, it's you got to consider sort of multiple fronts there. Yeah, I just wanted to throw in, uh, you know, if, if you've got these physical locations, is it easier to buy a $1 million player already there or to open your own office? I would think given the way you guys are set up, the former is easier for you. Yeah, well, it's easier for us. Yeah, if we're already there, yes. The, the, the main driver behind buying some of the smaller companies would be for the insurance contracts. It, it, it it's definitely a barrier of entry to get into these states and that it, it is if you can't go into a hospital system and want to do a partnership and you can only bill their Medicare and not their commercial insurance because you don't have contracts and it you know could take years to get contracts with some of these insurance companies until there's an opening available. Thanks for pointing that out. I, I, I didn't think of it from that angle. Yeah. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Mark. Well, all right, that was a phenomenal call. You guys are so efficient on the front end that uh, you know it is probably a little bit shorter than I, I, I guessed, but uh, I, th I think we got everything done. Do you have any f uh, concluding uh, comments? Uh, and um, you know, when you when you give the signal, we'll we'll cut it off, and when we broadcast this out, we'll put a uh, you know we'll put a a legend at the back end after after you're finished speaking. Yeah, sure. Uh, uh, just thanks everyone for taking the time today and uh, appreciate Scott and Aaron this opportunity and that, but uh, equipped home medical in that. We've got a great infrastructure here, a platform in that to uh, grow organically, to grow inorganically uh, via acquisitions. Our balance sheet's in the best shape that it's ever been in with over $50 million in liquidity. And, uh, you know, we are really looking forward to a really bright future, especially the second half of the year here. So thanks again, everyone. Thank Thanks. you, Greg. Yeah, thanks, Thank everybody. You. Neither Breakout Investors nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information presented by this podcast in any liability, including in respect to direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, therefore is expressly disclaimed. The views on this podcast expressed are those of the speaker and not breakout investors. No one on this podcast is an investment advisor and no one is providing investment advice. Before investing in any company's stock, you must do your own research. Thank you for listening.